They didn't realize we were seeds. They didn't realize you were seeds. They open doors so others can walk through them. Your legacy is every life you have ever touched. I'm Stella Sagliari, and this is Salt the Podcast. Welcome to Soul the Podcast, wonderful people. Thank you so much for being here. My guest today is Sofia Antonellini, whom you might remember from episode 15, season one, and who many of you wanted to return to Salt. And that is why Sophie is back. Before starting our conversation, though, I would like to introduce them by reading out the following. Sophie is a very sensitive being in a continuous process of rediscovery and reconstruction. They grew up in Argentina, but were born in Italy to Argentinian migrant parents. After 30 years on this earth, Sophie is embracing the death of herself and the rebirth of a new being, one that presents itself as a human in transition and as a beautiful mess. Sophie loves swimming, as water is the element that calms his fiery soul and enjoys watching movies and submerging into the film's reality for a few days as a way of escaping it. Sophie works in the not-for-profit sector and is part of collective initiatives for community building and decolonial praxis. Vulnerability, radical care, and community are the words framing their life today. Sophie's living in a chaotic present, learning to trust their own path, and committed to building a more empathetic future. Sophie and I met on a Monday evening in a safe, brave space of vulnerability and radical honesty. And I hope you will enjoy this very special conversation and that it will move you to something different. Hi, Sophie. Welcome back to Salt. I'm very happy that you're here with us again, and I'm very much looking forward to our conversation tonight. And yeah, welcome. Thank you. Hello, Stella, again. It's nice to see you, as always. And yeah, thank you for, for having me here again. <laughs> yes. So, yeah, I felt you had to come back for many different reasons. The first reason was that after people listened to our conversation, they told me, Sophie has to come back. We want to hear more from them, more from Sophie. Um, you need to make a panel discussion with Sophie. I'm just sharing different <laughs> feedback that I received. Um, now, I fell in love with feminism was another feedback that I received. Yeah, many different things. So that oh. was the first reason. But the second reason was I felt that I wanted you back. So I felt I needed you to come back. At this time, for yeah, I just felt Sophie has to be here, and we have to speak again. So, of course, I asked you last time who is Sophie, but I will ask you again who is Sophie, <laughs> because we always answer those questions differently. Yeah, differently, definitely. I think that we're always somehow different, and we still remain the same. I don't know. Well, first of all, thank you for for the feedback. I feel. It's too much. Sometimes it's difficult to receive these kind of words. Uh, I feel it, it's it's too big for me, <laughs> but I'm glad that um, these conversations, and I think it's also related to the way these podcasts are delivered and how you guide them, that this create this engagement and people feel the, 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 the effect on them. It's nice to see the effect on them. So thank you for sharing. Uh, who am I? Mm, who am I? I don't know anymore. <laughs> who am I? It's a... As I told you before, it's, it's a difficult question. Um, I know that um, since the last time we spoke, I think it was already two years ago, we, we, we went through a pandemic and we we're still like feeling the, the effects of that process that I think it's life-changing for, for, for everyone in the world. And I think for me personally, it has affected me a lot. Um, so I think that today I am 
I'm someone more vulnerable, definitely, than I was. Um, I'm a vulnerable being. I'm in a process of rebuilding myself, choosing which spaces I want to occupy, which things I want to do, and who I want to become. So I think I am someone that is becoming. (laughs) I do still consider myself somehow a feminist. I do still align with those principles. I do still fight and work for social justice and equality and inclusion. Uh, But I think that vulnerability became something that, yeah, frames every act and every step I take in my life because I'm kind of, yeah, becoming or being from that positionality of being vulnerable and recognizing that. I identify as non-binary, which is something that changed from our last podcast. (laughs) And it came with this process of, of being vulnerable and recognizing myself from a different place. I'm uh, I'm a Latina person. I like to swim. Uh, I like to dance. Dancing is a therapy for me. Uh, I have a cat and I have a dog in Argentina, whom I really miss. And what else could I share? I like a lot to to connect with with people. Yeah, I think that I'm being wiser and I'm choosing who to connect with. But I think that's something that became part of myself today as well. So, yeah, that's a little bit. Yes, thank you. And we will talk about some of the things you mentioned in our conversation today. And I actually want to start with vulnerability because when I felt that I had to bring you back to Salt and I felt also, Stella, I wanted to check in on you just to see how you are, regardless of the podcast. Um, The moment we connected, you were in Argentina back then, in I think the first five minutes you mentioned vulnerability. <laughs> As I say, I feel I need to speak to you. What do you want to talk about vulnerability? <laughs> and you mentioned it already. So I would like to talk a little bit more about this, um, about vulnerability. Great. Okay. Um, yes, I think it comes a lot to my to my being today because I had uh, quite a harsh time in the past. Yeah, I would say, I don't know how long, but I think two or three years. It kind of started with the pandemic, but it was a process that it has definitely not starting date or or finished date. I think it was an acknowledging process. I went through a a PTSD, so post-stress traumatic disorder from situations from my childhood and my uh, teenage years that I never had the chance or I never had the possibility of facing. And I do believe that Having the privilege to live in Europe during the pandemic time, which implied having some kind of standard life ensure, like a house where to live and a job and a relationship by then, um, gave me the chance to dive into some kind of corners of myself. Also because I started therapy and that also <laughs> opened up a dot of doors and ended up kind of destroying me, but not in a bad way, I would say, uh, beyond morality, beyond good or bad. Uh, that process led me in a place of of feeling vulnerable and fragile and having to stop. Um, after that, I also uh, recently broke up. I finished a relationship of, of five and a half years. And with that, I, I lost my home. Um, so it's been a few steps in the reality Uh the things that we usually tend to hold ourselves to, which is the work and the material things of life, they kind of suddenly stumbled and we're not there anymore. So that put me in a place of total vulnerability. And when I say vulnerability, it's it's something that comes with the, the possibility and the privilege of embracing it, realizing that uh, in Argentina, in my family, is something that has not been allowed because I see it. Uh, being vulnerable, it's, 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 a, it's not a possibility. We're so embedded in the survival mode and uh, we need to move forward and move forward at, at allowing ourselves to show us things that can break and us beings that sometimes just cannot, cannot anymore <laughs> was a, a whole new process. And I think that I shared about it when I was in Argentina because um, I migrated from Argentina in 2017 and it wasn't until the last December that I went back for the first time for more than two weeks uh, or a month. I stayed there three months and a week because I needed it for my soul, for my body, and for this reconstruction process I'm going through. And 
presenting myself in my homeland vulnerable was a complete complete new thing a complete change it it was life-changing to be honest it transformed the way I relate to my mother to to my father to my friends to to the places that I used to to live in the places I used to spend time in to to the world itself and I think that vulnerability uh, was the main word because it's it's kind of a way that now shows itself uh, when I introduce myself or when you film me. And I, I wanted to actually uh, connect another thought with it because suddenly when I started presenting myself as a vulnerable being, somehow the connection with the surroundings and the information or the readings that I keep to choose, keep choosing or books or videos that I see or articles that I, whatever, vulnerability keeps coming to, to the surface. And recently the I read an article from an indigenous leader from Brazil called Ailton, uh, Ailton Krenak. Yeah, I have the name written because I don't know how to read Yeah, Ailton Krenak, which is an indigenous leader. And in, in, in the text, he talks about different things, but basically the indigenous wisdom and the, the people from, from, from South America and their struggles in the world that it's falling apart. And one of the things that he said that for me, it, it stayed with me because for me uh, in the past period, like I also lost my job in that process or I quit because I couldn't work anymore and I lost my relationship. And he brings in the article one thing that says that according to, to, to his knowledge and he believes that there's two things uh, in this world that do not allow us to, to, to think in a different way or to build a different reality. And there are kind of stones that keep appearing in our path and making us stumble upon them and, and falling. And those two things is considering that time is money. And the other thing is considering that work is the realization of the being. And hold there because maybe I'm going places from one place to the other, but I connect this with vulnerability because for me, the moment that the structures of my life were, which are supposed to be the work and who I am based on my professional career and my relationships or the house where I live or my financial situation, those kind of uh, got stopped somehow because I could not continue anymore. I presented myself vulnerable and I started thinking, wait, that vulnerability opened the door for me to ask myself, who am I? Who I want to become? And in this world that it's falling apart, what do I really want to put my time into? Or not even my time, my life, my desire, my 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 pain, my happiness. And uh, after several panic attacks and anxiety attacks because of having uncertainty all over suddenly, these words really, really helped me to, to take a step and to, to think. And yeah. So I think that vulnerability to close it because it's been a really long answer. <laughs> I'm sorry for that. Uh, led me to act, react, and exist from a different place. Thank you. I actually have more questions. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> no, 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 no. Because today... The vulnerability, of course, will guide us through our conversation. The non-binary will guide us through our conversation. But before we we continue on that, you said it was the first time that you presented yourself vulnerable in your country. I mean, whatever it means yeah. in Argentina, let's say in your in your home country. Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah. So I think that so Ar Argentina. I speak from my experience in Argentina. Um, I left Argentina when I was twenty four, I think. Oh, for gosh. Yes, long time ago, uh, when I was 24. And I lived up until that moment embedded in the daily life. And and, and there were many things that happened to me uh, that I normalized somehow. And I do believe that migrating for me, which was kind of a runaway because I needed to leave the country um, for different reasons. But yeah, the economic crisis and a few personal situations led me to to decide to try it out and having the privilege of holding a passport led me to migrate. But it wasn't until now that this whole, it's been almost six years uh, that I've been living in Western Europe. 
uh, it wasn't until now that I came back as fragile as a piece of paper <laughs> that can just be carried by the wind and wet by the water and crashed by a car, whatever, as a piece of paper, I would say, that things started to appear differently. And I think that's why, for me, it was the first time. Because also, uh, while I was living here in Europe in the past two years, I started dealing with uh, traumas from my yeah from when i was young and those traumas were things that i don't know i don't know if by staying in argentina i have had the chance to open them i think that the space and the distance from mm. those known places and those difficult places like my hometown uh gave gave me the tools to to yeah to see myself from a different place um yes but for me, was was that and presented myself vulnerable in Argentina was that like it was the first time I had a very deep conversation with my mom. Uh, oof, uh, that for me was life changing because she saw me vulnerable and she was worried about it. And it wasn't until I I showed myself as I felt without necessarily putting the strong Sophie, the fearful Sophie. As a masquerade, because that's the way I was. I was learned how to react. Having a mother that comes from a low middle-income family with nine kids and working since she was thirteen, for me, the role model of my life was this strong woman that can defeat everything. And being myself vulnerable also allowed a space for her to feel vulnerable. And going back to Argentina like this was crazy, uh, Stella. I. I I feel that now my my commitment is to open up whenever it's possible honest spaces and and place for vulnerability and trying to really embrace that because I do believe that there's a need to recognize that the the world is this the world as we know it is dying it it, it is in a process of dying it's mutating into something that we don't know and there is a chance behind that mutation and I do believe that in order to embrace that process, we need to start moaning and, and being vulnerable and presenting ourselves with a different face. Uh, I started crying uh, since everything started, like this PTSD and this whole situation. I started crying in places that I would not allow myself to do so. I used to cry more when I, I like to watch films and I cry out of anything, but it's mm. my space for crying, you know? Also, my mom yeah, does this. She doesn't cry in front of people, but she cries with movies. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and since then, I started crying whenever I just need to cry. And I, the shame of it, I still embrace it, but starts falling. So I think that, yeah, if, if, if the replies to your question or, or the comment about going back to Argentina as a vulnerable being. Let's go. <laughs> to the next question right it's all connected but yeah. um you already introduced yourself as non-binary and um i want us to now dive into into the subject subject into this yeah into this idea of binarism um and i'm a big um yeah I, i'm i'm very much into this idea or into the importance of breaking the binary on all kinds of levels. So I would like us to talk about this now. I would like you to elaborate a little bit on that and then we see where it takes us and, and what we will um, yeah, what we will add. Thank you. Yes. So um, I'm going to try to not lose the flow of my thoughts because there's so many things interconnected. Yeah. yeah. Breaking the non-binary, I think it has to do with the liberating ourselves from defining structures or defining labels. So not only in terms of, of, of gender identity, so trying to go out of the definition of I am strictly a man or I'm strictly a woman, whatever those two categories mean, but acknowledging a position of in-betweenness, of in-betweenness of not two things, but in-betweenness of things. And for me, It, it really felt liberated and somehow everything made sense when I started acknowledging myself in that process. I say non-binary because it's also the 
agreements in terms of idiomatics and language that that many activists and many courageous people before us arrived to and, and, and embedded and embraced. But actually, ideally, is like ideally, I would like to define myself as as just human <laughs> in under construction because that that's that's the main purpose of of going out of the non-binary. So not non. And when I say that everything made sense, um, I think it's I also bring back from our conversation two thoughts from our conversation from our uh, previous podcast recording. One of them is that when you ask me where do I find um, like braveness and, and courageous words when I feel defeated, and I told you that the, the trans women and the trans activists from Argentina were always for me a place of admiration, but also softness, vulnerability, honesty, care, and, and, and yeah, and I I feel that since since my whole process of seeing myself differently started. I see also the why those beings and those words were so so gracious for me or so grateful for me because somehow I wanted to be able to see myself as something that can transgress, that can transmutate, that can transition into something else. But there were many things that I was not letting myself to recognize out of fear, out of the upbringing in a Catholic rea reality and family um, out of so many things. Like, uh, yeah, I think I'm also reading now uh, the book Dysphoria Mundi from Perciado. I will go through it later in our conversation, but he speaks from his positionality as a trans man and shares a lot about the process of feeling dysphoric. Dysphoria, for those that do not, do not know, is defined as a, a sense of unease or discomfort that someone may have because they do not feel uh, comfortable between their biological sex and their uh, gender identity or expression. And in the book, well, he uses it to different things. He takes this term and takes it to other places. But for me, recognizes my my own dysphoric be feelings and and seeing them made me think, okay, uh, I feel suffocated by having to define myself because I don't really want to. Yeah. So uh, embracing that non-binary identity is not something that I do out of, oh, I'm Sophie, I'm non-binary. I'm just sharing because for me it's liberating. But actually I'm a process of recognizing who I am and who I want to be regardless of those labels because gender identity is a social construction to categorize society. Uh, the division between men and, and women, and I'm not saying this out of the blue, uh, they have a lot of material on Instagram that it's very accessible and very easy to understand about the binary imposition into and the division between the biological division between men and, and women. But uh, it, it's also about transgressing the place to having to position ourselves. And the, the second thought that I want to bring back uh, from the previous conversation we had um, is that there's this book also that always is a good place for me to go back and to reread it and to take a deep breath and feel accompanied. That is The Borderland, La Frontera, de Gloria Saldúa. Because what she did there is acknowledging her position as a mestiza, so as a Chicana feminist from indigenous origins, uh, migrating to the U.S., being a queer person in a Catholic background, in the Latino culture, which I really uh, align a lot with because also queer myself, uh, recognizing that the first times I kissed a girl, it was when I was a teenager and I was giving fake numbers because I didn't want anyone to know about this. I was hiding myself in the club, in a very small town. So acknowledging all of these things that resemble from the story of Gloria and how she talks about the mestiza and the in-betweenness, the borderland, appropriating the borderland as a political identity, as a political, as a position itself, not having to be on one place or, or the other, but choosing the things from each of the places that are making part of me. Yeah, I say it and I breathe better. So it, when, when this whole process started, uh, I think that for me it's, it's about, yeah, going against the forced the, the forced positionalities, like the, the need to define ourselves because we're in constant mutation and I don't know who I'm going to be end up being. 
uh, I just know that I'm in a constant becoming and positioning outside the binary for me is positioning outside those places in terms of everything, gender identity, sexual orientation, nationalities, geographies, I don't know, whatever, you name it. (laughs) First, I also breathe better after what you just said, (laughs) especially at the end. Well, yeah, no. And what I also find really important, and you already said it, non-binary to me means so much more than gender identity, sexual orientation, man, woman. It, it To me, it, it goes to the entire structure of our society, you know, and also what, what you said at the beginning when you said, I lost my job, I lost my relationship, I lost my house, I lost my financial security, I lost all these labels to say I'm a program manager or I'm uh, the fiance of blah, 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 or I'm, I live in that street. So then it's like, oof, I'm losing all these important things. And I find it so beautiful. This, this idea of this vastness of this fluidity, but, but putting it on all aspects of our life, you know, and um, yeah. Yeah, exactly. and, And it's funny because when when we spoke last time and you mentioned the trans community, um, it was the I think it was the first time that you shared that with me. I don't think you had shared it before. It, it definitely not like in conversations that we had when we met. Let's say definitely not to that extent. And one of my questions was that you have to go into the why. And I asked myself the same: Why is Sophie so intrigued with this community? What is it that 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 this community gives to them? And and you answered it today, you know. And and I find it nice that to see this transformation you know like that now you 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 see why you you feel the safety there the warmth the home probably I don't know or yeah or yeah and I want to say something that this this is a beautiful conversation Stella I think uh, just thank you for for seriously this space but I want to say that how ironic it is that these lives that are so courageous, so brave to, to defy the norm and the structures and to see I'm going to be who I want to be. So ironic it is that in every geographic place of this world, their expectation of life is so low. Yeah. That their conditions for, for life, for work, for, for being, for loving, for existing are so vulnerable marginalized not vulnerable because we're using vulnerability as a powerful thing but one thing is when people are put into a vulnerable place systemically how 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 ironic how how sad and how i think it is interconnected that uh in a world where in a capitalistic uh, world and and neoliberal systems where being brave and and deciding who you want to be outside the norm the trans community and, and the non-binary identities and those that do not want to be forcibly put into places that are developed for a reason that it's the productivity of the system. Yeah. That's why we were yeah. imposed into those yeah. categories. Suffer so much and keep suffering to till today. So I think that, yeah, reading for me, reading Camila Sosa Vicha, uh, it's a it's a trans woman poet, actor, amazing being from Argentina and, and, and listening to Alana Berkins and even reading Preciado that is more an, an academic uh, and more, I would say, bourgeois because it's a different stand, more European. There is a powerful wisdom there. There's, <clears throat> there's and, and you feel it, or at least I, I feel it and I felt it and I'm grateful for for their commitment to to trying to build a different world for themselves, which implies also a different and better world for us, all of yeah. us. Yeah. And you also, I mean, you, you already said it a little bit, but you shared with me that I'm in a body that is dying, that is letting go of memories that are painful, and that is embracing the potential to be free. And I think you just explained it very beautiful with with what you shared with us i don't know if you want to add anything to it it's about not having to necessarily explain who i am or not having to demonstrate to anyone who i am what i've done what i want to be there's no need to show anything i don't need to put in the faces the experiences i went through to legitimate myself Hmm. 
I don't need to, um, yeah, I don't need to, I don't need to necessarily define myself. I don't want to do that anymore, at least. And when I started seeing that that was kind of an imposition from my surroundings or from the structures and institutions, it kind of felt powerful to say no and and to say the the, the saying that I'm I'm a dying being or that parts of me are dying is because of therapy as well. Recognizing that there is a part of me uh, that have somehow healed very deep wounds and processes. Um, also makes me realize that, yeah, I mean, I'm I'm still somehow the same person because there's part of me that remained the same. Uh, and I think that I'm very authentic and empathetic and this has always been the case. But I feel more powerful today and that powerfulness or that power comes from rebirth into something that I still don't know and not necessarily putting a name into it, but being more aware of how my body feels or what are the messages behind my body and how do I want to move? How do I want to uh, inhabit myself? So I think that, that, that that's that. And I think also this death comes from acknowledging also the death that it surrounded myself, um, processing the death of loved beings in the past period and connecting with humans, which led me to learn a lot about mourning and, and about death, um, led me to recognize my own death. Um, I just want to say one more time, just for the listeners, because maybe some are thinking, what are they talking about? Because some yes. things might be like, <laughs> okay, it's not like you hear all these, these things every day, right? But I, I feel like it is so deep. And I just wish that we all engage with it more than just... Mm -hmm. And maybe this is just, just a call to anybody who is listening, as I said at the beginning, and just, I say in quotation mark, it's not just about your gender identity. It's not just about your sexual orientation. It's for me, it is so deep. And the more um, I, I engage with it, the more I try to understand it. And also, I mean, queer theory, I, I would say it goes with it. There's so much depth in it. And it's not just something that, that you should make fun of or so, because I feel like people do that when, when someone says I'm non-binary, that they don't mm. take the person seriously or they will say, what is that? What are you? Where's that coming from now? It's something that the Europeans are bringing or the Americans are bringing to us, you know, like, you know, yeah. But I feel like it is so overarching. It, it applies to so many things. It's, to, to the structure, how our society is structured. And that's why I would say the trans community, I mean, of course, there are different reasons why why they're being treated the way they're being treated, but they just, they break all the binary in all the way, in yeah. everything, you know. And yeah, it's just this idea of how, how of course, when, when you lose, and I mean, I, I'm not going to romanticize these things now. When you lose your job, you're free. No, because it depends where you are when you lose your no, job, right? No, not at and all. You, and, you also, <laughs> and you also said it is different if you live a pandemic in the Netherlands and it's different if you live a pandemic in Argentina. Yeah. Um, but all these labels that, that are being put on us, they're so restricting in so many levels, you know? Yeah. And yeah, I just want people to to engage yeah. more with this idea of the non-binary because for I me think... it's really really deep and it opens up a vastness a fluidity something endless you know yeah that's why uh, becoming right becoming I mean you're using the progressive it, the continuous yeah. it's it's constant it, it doesn't end yeah and it also shows the connection I mean you mentioned death now you meant you mentioned nutrients it, we are not, and, and I feel like, for instance, the Netherlands is a very individualistic society, but we are coexisting with so many things, with smells, with the nature, with the street, with bacteria, with, with yeah. whatever, with animals, with, with the weather, with the nature, with the seasons, with, yeah. And to me, this, this non-binary opens all this up, you know, because there's no wall. It's like, exactly. Yeah. Definitely. And actually, oh, I have so many things to say. I'm going to say them. I'm going to name them so I can go in depth. Um, first of all, there's something I want to say something about the non-binary uh, structure as itself and maybe share a little bit with the listeners, the idea behind it and the project of the binary project, because it also it's related to colonization. 
Non-binary identities, speaking in English, might be more a Northern term or might be more uh, used by North Americans or Western Europeans or whatever. But actually, it wasn't until the colonization that it was strictly and forcibly imposed in many in many communities that even though they have different assignations for women and men or roles, uh, with colonization, it became forcibly a division, a categorization. This is women. This is men. And this is the way that the familiar composition, the nuclear familiar composition, which is binary in itself, the colonial uh, system and the colonial project of creating the man, the woman, and the woman, uh, an object and a possession of the man, along with the slaves and the property. And all of this was also a colonial project. So even though, uh, even though uh, we, we refer to it and we see it a lot in academia and in gender studies, and this is very Northern, and the wisdom from the indigenous communities about the fall of the Anthropocene, which the fall of the Anthropocene is what we're going through now. What is the Anthropocene? Is believing that the human is the center of, mm. of the structures, that mm-hmm. everything goes through the human. We are rational animals and we are needed for creating and for developing. Actually, we're, we're seeing that we are not at the center. So the end of the Anthropocene, which many sociologists and philosophers talk about it, and Donna Haraway itself, uh, Preciado, and many talk about it. Um, it's actually something that in the cosmo- cosmology and the vision of life that indigenous tribes and community never had because they thought that humans and the sun and as you mentioned, like the street, the smells, the surroundings are all part of the same system and acknowledging those existences and the need of them for life is the main the main issue. And because we lost that through colonization and through capitalism, we are where we are today. So I think that the the other thing connected to that 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 I wanted to say is that exactly breaking the non-binary is not only about breaking the definition of I am a woman or I am a man. It's breaking also the binary of human nature as opposites. No, we are intertwined in a thing that it's all connected. I remember actually um, this place where I went for this exhibition in in Barcelona. um, It's a funny story because I ended up there casualty. It was life. Uh, I went to Barcelona two times after that, and I always go to that place because there's always a surprise. The second time I went there, I saw an exhibition about Donna Haraway and the storytelling for earthly survival and the concept of thinking about the, the, the life not with the human at the center. She talks about the bacteria and the importance of bacteria for us to be able to breathe. The oxygen that we breathe and the changing of the CO2 and the it comes, it, bacteria are crucial for that. Bacteria are crucial to be able to live in this world. But because bacteria, compared to the idea of human, that is like so prominent, yeah, prominent and this completely obnoxious idea that we are the center, and that's what's the Anthropocene, Anthropo as men, and seen as the scenario of the stage, that dies if we think about what we need in the daily life. And, 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 from there comes the connection with plants, uh, the connection with animals. And so breaking the binary as something of becoming, it's also for me strong and powerful because it's related to that as well. It's breaking the thinking about binary structures. And when we think about death and life and the death of myself and thinking that death is within life itself, it's also breaking the binary or if you are alive or you are dead. And I do believe that it's not only until we acknowledge the death of our surroundings and the pain that the death implies that we're going to start trying to do things differently because, and that's the power of vulnerability. So maybe now we're doing the closing kind of connection. <laughs> but uh, yeah, um, I think there's, it, it's, it's powerful and we're, we're in a, in a crucial moment and, it's not only me saying it as out of my brain or whatever. I keep reading it and I keep thinking that since the pandemic started, we are stumbling upon a world that it's, yeah, it, 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 it's drowning itself. It's burning itself. There's wars, mm. there's pain there. But it's also a crucial moment to really ask ourselves who I want to be and how do I want to live? I'm tired of facades and masquerades and pretending. I'm tired, man. <laughs> sorry i'm possessed now by the whole good, <laughs> good. <laughs> but uh yeah and for me this this is 
Thank you for the space because it's a reminder because it's not easy. I had an anxiety crisis yesterday thinking about where I'm going to live and what I'm going to do out of a living and I need to work and I need to pay debts and life, you know, but bringing back these thoughts and reminding ourselves of it's just not about defining things as a thick box. It's about thinking really and truthfully and, and honestly what do I want to to be? What do I want to occupy? And at every step, I think. Oh, sorry. Uh, it was a long reply uh, idea. No, it, it's good for me to hear that <laughs> as well. <laughs> um, I think we will stay with the connection with the nature, Sophie, because yes. um, I want you to share a memory with me that you cannot forget. And that had an impact in your life, and you shared a little bit with me already. So, yeah. um, it's 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 mobilizing because um, I'm vulnerable. <laughs> yeah, a memory. I think it is because um, a memory I want to share is a memory I have when when I was a kid. Uh, suddenly going back to Argentina and spending time with my parents and in my hometown for the first time in a long time. And actually I feel that for the first time because I'm rebirthing. So it kind of felt that it was a known place, but it was a new place as well. It led me to remember a lot of things. And one of them is a night in Venado. Um, Venado Tuerto is, is, is my hometown. It's a small, big town, small city in the south of Santa Fe. And being there now, uh, there is this, this, this Venado is in the most wet area of Argentina. And when I was there, it has been more than four months that it haven't rained. And it, that's what led my mom to be preoccupied about my sensitivity and my vulnerability because we were traveling to a closed city called Rosario. And I just couldn't believe it, Stella. I, I couldn't believe that the lagoons and the lakes that are, Lagoons, not lakes, it's Laguna, uh, I think it's Lagoon in English, mm -hmm. that I used to see when I was a kid. They were drought. Uh, I saw dead animals because they were uh, without water. And I saw cows and horses traveling to be in the shade of the trees. And I, I saw dried lands and I saw how the agriculture has invaded almost every piece of land in the south of Santa Fe. And it's just, it was too painful to see this. And I couldn't just hold myself, um, see the effects of this this model of life that uh, we, we we were imposed to live in and how it led to this. So the memory that brings me joy or that brings me also nostalgia. I'm a little bit addictive to nostalgia. Uh, I need to be, <laughs> that's a disclaimer. I like it kind of, um, but it's always leaving me very fragile. Um, it's a moment when I was uh, very young, very kid. I think I was around. My sister was not there. Uh, so it was only my brother and my parents. And in Benado, there used to be really strong storms. It's very wet or used to be a very wet area. They call it La Pampa Humeda, which is the wet pampa. You're like very, very green and lots of frogs and light uh, insects. I don't know how to call them in English, but in Spanish it's bichitos de luz. So whenever mm, there is a storm yeah. in the summer, oh my gosh, it was like a purge of the soul and the sky letting it pouring. And, and I remember once that it was a really strong storm that it put down many trees, including a cipress that was one of the oldest trees in the center of the city. Uh, I remember because we had to make a poem in the school to the tree. <laughs> um that night, uh, there was no light in the whole town for really long periods. And I remember that after the storm went through, because we usually got scared, my dad took us, my 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 brother and myself to the garden. We lay down in the in the grass, I think. By then we had this this we were living in kind of an area that was very countryside. We didn't have sewer system and the the there was no cement, no pavement. It was like land. So um, it was really open and a lot of fields. And he pointed us to the south, La Cruz del Sur. I don't know how to say it in English. 
and it's a constellation in the sky because you could see all the stars and it was such a beautiful sky and I don't know the sounds of, of, of the insects and the crickets and the frogs and used to be full of frogs in, in my in my backyard. And he pointed also to the Tres Marias, which is also another constellation we have in Argentina, the Three Marys. <laughs> I don't know the story, but you know, because you always try to find it in the sky. Uh, and I think that that had an impact to me because I don't know why, but I, I keep going to that place since I went back to Argentina now. Maybe because I'm addicted to nostalgia and I want to remember the times where my homeland was wet and climate change or the disaster that we're going through was not so painful and harmful. Uh, or maybe because it doesn't matter where I'm located, I can see at the sky somehow and feel that somehow I'm in the same earth uh, from that Sophie and that father. And, and that moment, the sky always is this piece of thing that, I don't know, special thing, I would say, special thing. Sky is a special thing. <laughs> that's a quote. But uh, yeah, that, that's a memory I cannot forget or that maybe keeps coming to me lately. And yeah, I actually evoked it yesterday. Um, I'm trying to to do videos, to learn how to edit videos as a tool to stop talking uh, too much and using words and trying to navigate into video making. I bought myself a small camera and I made a small uh, prey for the rain to fall because it's really dry and it's very, it's a risky situation what's, what's going on in that, that area of the country. So yeah, maybe now we are evoking it as well uh, with this conversation. And yeah, I like to think that with these intentions, we're trying to, to bring water back. My partner, if we want to put labels, he has <laughs> one of his labels is also Argentinian. <laughs> and he always shows our kids the Tres Marias. Ah. <laughs> we are right now in a place where we have a lot of stars and we see them very clearly. We're in a village in Greece. And in the night, he always points to them. Do you see the Tres Marias? He's obsessed <laughs> with them. First. Second, he keeps telling me about the Laguna where he grew up that also is dry. And the last few weeks, he has said it several times to me. And third, when we first started uh, dating, he had to go to Argentina because his father was dying. And I woke up in the middle of the night. And um, at that time, it was I had just gotten a smartphone. So yeah. I felt I had to check my emails. So I checked my emails and he had sent me an email. It was three or four in the morning. And he wrote me, he has this way of writing a little bit poetic. You don't always understand it, but <laughs> he spoke about the rain, the heavy rain that was falling in Buenos Aires. And he was in his house um, where he grew up in, in the room where he grew up. And he was, he was writing about the rain to me. So All the three things that you mentioned, they, they evoked their own memories to me. And in addition to that, both me and my partner, we are also very nostalgic people. <laughs> so I feel you. Yeah. So when I when I when when I saw that Tres Marias, the rain, the laguna, I was like, wow. You know? Wow. Thanks so, for sharing. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy the connections. Yeah. yeah. This this brings much more. Like we're all interconnected. It's like yeah. <laughs> yes. And Sophie, you we, we mentioned Argentina already a lot, and I know the trip uh, that that you had recently was intense, and you shared a lot about it. But Argentina also won uh, the World Cup while you were there. And um, for people who don't know, I think Argentinians and football, there's nothing like that anywhere else in the world. Um, <laughs> so I want us to talk a bit about that. Argentinians yes. and football. <laughs> Thank you. I like it. It's a nice way to come from the nostalgia and to a powerful memory and to bring back the, <laughs> the happiness to my body and my memories. Thank you for asking. Man, it was still, it was, it was amazing. Um, I mean, for those that listen, I mean, we all know that the World Cup and, and the FIFA and 
even AFA, which is the Argentinian Federation yeah. of Football, they're all yeah. mafia. They're yeah. institutions connected to power dynamics. We all know, not we all know, actually, that in the building of the stadiums in Qatar, a lot of migrant people died. And, yeah. and, and, and that's terrible. And I, I do not, again, I don't want to be in a binary position of I'm against or I'm pro, whatever. I'm tired of those things as well. Uh, but regardless that, in in societies and in in territories where pain and uncertainty and crisis is the the current situation and the daily situation and we grow up with, with, with that we create our own tools to survive and celebration and and collectives and gathering are part of it and also I feel powerful today because I was able to be in Argentina and to remember that celebrating at every instance and at every chance that we have is also a way of resisting. Joy is also a way yeah. of resisting. Yes. So being yes. in Argentina. Yes. Uh, Thank you for saying that, Sophie. Being in Argentina for that period was just a gift. I I, I, I cannot put words into it. I had the chance to experience the different match, matches in different circumstances. And I'm going to share one anecdote. The game between the Netherlands and Argentina, <laughs> I had the chance to saw it with a woman named Cristina. Um, I was traveling in the south of Argentina and uh, we were looking for a place where to sleep. Uh, we were with a tent. And someone told us, uh, you need to go to this place. There used to be like a camping place, but we were talking about like places with no much Wi-Fi, not Wi-Fi at all, and no much signal. And we arrived to this piece of land with two or three dogs, two dogs, a few chickens, a hen, and sheep and other animals, and this very humble house. And Christina comes out of the house and we ask her if we could stay there. And she said, yes, you can stay there. Uh, we put the tent in the backyard and we stayed with her and we watched the game with her the day after. She didn't have much in her house. Uh, she had a very humble house. She's been living there for her whole life. She was born in that land, in that piece of land. Her parents used to, lived in that land. The name of the land is El San Jose which are the name of her parents who already passed. Uh, Cristina is more than 70 years old. Her daughter, who died of cancer, is buried in that land. And Cristina today is in a judicial process against uh, U.S. people that want to steal her land. That's Cristina, who wakes up every morning to feed her sheep, to give food to her dogs, uh, Reina and Floppy, <laughs> to feed the chickens and the hens. And she's also sometimes given space of her backyard for, for tourists to, to sleep because her house is located uh, four hours away from a very special spot that you can only access by hiking, walking. And watching the game with Christina was... I was there with uh, my ex-partner, Omar, which we are in really good terms. It's, a, it's someone that I really admire and I really love. And for him was also an experience uh, being in Argentina by that period. But with this circumstance and this the situation he got to see how much more than just football it is. When we won against uh, the Netherlands, we hiked with Christina, we were drinking beer together and we started crying. And the happiness in her body and in the whole circumstances of the daily life that she's struggling with and, and, and the whole structures and the injustice and the unfairness of, of everything in this world, but the happiness that she was having and, and how it's just, I, I kind of put it into words. And I think that for, for, for Omar in that moment was also like, he finally realized when I told him that it's, it's beyond just winning is the passion. Yeah. And yeah. we are extreme. We're very extreme population. And I recognize this. We're very fanatic, might not be good, might not lead us to really good things, but it's the way we are. And there's something romantic about it as well. So the winning the world championship was was that kind of happiness that that you know somehow we we needed and I I keep saying that for me it was like kind of winning the world cup of the end of the world cup 
end of the world world cup <laughs> somehow in this end of the world in terms not an apocalyptic end of the world or romanticizing it but acknowledging that we're going through a process we cannot deny it there's evidence at every corner that things are reaching a point of no back no turn winning this world cup was extremely meaningful and yeah and not only for us i mean i was i was working in a project at that period with uh, an organization in bangladesh and i don't know if you saw yeah. but yeah people yes. in bangladesh yes. and, and do you know why because of maradona and, and maradona could be could have been misogynistic whatever but he's a popular figure and he was something that showed himself vulnerable and truth as he was at every instance of his life and he stood against uh, the US he stood against the UK he delivered really strong political thoughts as a football player and this is why in Bangladesh because when the i think it was when the world cup was playing and maradona won against the UK Bangladesh was going through the independence process so this is why the population in Bangladesh were celebrating as well in IT uh, in colombo in latin america it was crazy every country so it i think it also shows the interconnectedness somehow and it's happiness as you know being in the streets and seeing that it doesn't matter your skin color it doesn't matter your social class it doesn't matter your gender identity it doesn't matter the position where you are standing it doesn't matter who you are we're all happy we're celebrating with the kind of same colors it's just something that has no description and yeah it was beautiful. I'm I'm very thankful. It was a historical moment. Uh, I I I keep evoking and going through pictures to to feel a little bit how we felt those days. Of course, there were incidents because it's a kind of a purge. People people go crazy, and yeah, there were extreme situations. But overall, it was a a party. Uh, yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you for asking. <laughs> of course, I love to talk about that. <laughs> we are world champions. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I mean, we're, go we're going crazy in our house, obviously. Lots of yeah, exactly. And celebrating and all kinds of things. And uh, yeah, my partner, because we didn't have a TV, actually. We, yeah, we don't care so much about TV. We had like a TV maybe from the 80s that also, to be honest, didn't work. So he said, we have to buy a TV because I have to watch the World Definitely. Cup on a proper TV. And yes, so we bought a TV just for that. Yeah. Nice. I'm glad that you also got to experience it. Of course. <laughs> yes, yes. And my kids and everybody in the family in Argentina calling and so on. But yeah, but I like, I, I will keep the this, what you said from joyous resistance and mm. also the power of being in the streets, reclaiming the streets and the story of Cristina that you shared. Very powerful. I think that because I, I wanted people to understand what football means to Argentinians. Yeah. So, yeah, that thank story. you for, for asking. <laughs> yeah. Now you have to ask me a question. Yes. What is your question for me? Oof, um, I could have many, but uh, I have a question that I think it's also because I know that you, you have. Uh, migration background with many migrations and that you have recently migrated again uh, to Greece and you are also a daughter of migrants' parents. So if you need to think about the times in your life uh, when you felt at home uh, as a kid, as a teenager, today as a mother, uh, as an adult person, how you describe that feeling or define that sensation and if you can maybe share a little bit about the moments uh, that you felt that, how do you evolve them? Or what was the circumstances that made you feel like this? What does feeling at home for salt means <laughs> for Stella? It's a very deep question that you asked me. It's probably also, no, not probably, it is associated with, if I go really back with pain, with a lot of trauma and not very nice things. Um, <clears throat> but so I will answer the, the question in, in, in different ways. If you ask me what is home as a place, I would tell you it's Hios, the island where I'm right now, where my father is from and where I spend most of my summers and where I'm currently living with my family. This is my home in, in the sense of location. 
Um, I'm connected to to the soil, to the mountains, to the smells, to the destroyed streets, no pavements. I don't know to all of this, to the to the mess, the beauty, the ugliness, all these things that you understand what I'm talking about. But home for me is also, um, to be honest, I mean, if, if I have to name a place as this, but home. It's also my 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 partner when I'm in his arms. This is my home. Just this warmth. His body has a, has an extreme warmth. Yeah, he rate. I mean, literally, it's warm. One of our kids says, "Why is our father so warm when he when I hug him? He's warm. He makes me warm. Like he he has his body is is hot. It's warm. So his his embrace to me, it's home. When I'm when he hugs me." That's it. I'm I'm home. Um, when I hug my daughter, it, it feels home right now as well. That there's not to, to say not with my other kids, but there, there's something there. It's okay, but it's also it's it's something that that I've been struggling with, and um, so I, I I find home in in the in the in a in a very deep way also in feminism. Feminism gave me a home, and there is actually a quote that I want to read. Um, it is by by Mohanty, and it's funny because you mentioned Ansaldua, you mentioned the border crossings, you mentioned breaking the binary. So, yeah, I, I mean, I, I need to make sense now of everything that I'm saying. I hope it makes sense what it I'm is, answering. It is. it is beautiful. <laughs> but um, I, I've written a I've written a, a text about feminism how feminism came to me and what it means to me and in that text i'm writing i'm enchanted by feminist cartographies feminist genealogies which i associate with border crossings literal and metaphorical ones the borders of nations social categories disciplines taboos all kinds of conceivable borders i link those journeys to the breaking of binaries to journeys towards home Home is that deeply political space that allows us to envision feminist solidarity, solidarities, characterized by a coming together to break established injustices, a radical connection that acknowledges our interdependencies, a political solidarity that is deep and powerful, a vital force to establish social justice and freedom from all types of violence that affect our minds, bodies, communities, the environment in various ways. A space that makes us ask, what can we do for each other instead of who are we? Recognizing that genders, sexualities, races, classes, nations, and even continents exist not as hermetically sealed entities, but rather as parts of a permeable interwoven relationality. And now while I'm reading it, I think it makes a lot of sense. Everything we talked about today. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) We didn't plan this. There were some quotes in that paragraph, which I didn't uh, acknowledge right now. But if you want to read it, whoever's listening, you can find it on my blog. But thank you for sharing. This is where I felt home, home really for the first time, because I always felt I don't fit in. So I want to explain a little bit more. And with feminism because of what feminism is and because also feminism constantly evolves and there's not one feminism and feminism is occupied with so many things. It's not just women liberation. It's so much more. And we want to put something in its love at the end of the day. And it's also associated with movement and movement is something that really characterizes my life. I always move. Like I move literally from places. I travel a lot. I move around. I move all day long because I have to move with my kids up the stairs, down the stairs. Feminism is a movement for me. It's in the streets. We move. It moves us. It moves as a movement because it constantly evolves. And it's also like, yeah, I I also don't go with one crowd, with one thing. Um, I love the sea because it moves. The mountains Mm -hmm. I like, but they're static. So I like more the sea. The fact that that... Yeah, I'm I'm not one thing, you know. I I like to be with all kinds of people. I have friends. I don't stick to one crowd. I don't stick to one thing, you know. And that's why maybe to to sum it up, th- this idea of my pronouns are they, like what would you have embraced? 
it opens up so many possibilities and it's, it breaks the binary and it says, I'm not just one thing and I'm mm-hmm. moving. We are moving. Feminism is moving us. It brings us to the streets, what you, what you explained. It gives us tears. It gives us joy. And through all these things, we are resisting. You know, you had a very emotional moment right now where you said, I'm done with all this kind of pretending and blah, blah, blah. And it's so powerful, you know, but then we fall back into it because we live in the system. And that's why we need to have conversations like the one tonight. And I thank you very much for this. And I want people (laughs) to engage with this idea of breaking the binary. And this is how I will finish. And this is what I want to honor tonight. This vastness, the fluidity. Yeah. So thank you, Sophie. Thanks to you. I'm I'm touched by by your words now. So thank you from my heart. Un abrazo. Yeah, from me as well. Thanks. Something that is loved is never lost. I'm Stella Salieri and this is Salt the Podcast.